This is the New Testament reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The word of the Lord. Just about my uh, favorite place in the world is sitting on my back porch with a book. I know a pastor is supposed to say uh, that their favorite place is here. But if I'm honest, it is uh, with a book alone on my back porch. Uh, and really, I would choose to be reading a book uh, more than I would choose to do just about anything else. And as a, a reader of literature and history and theology and so forth for decades, I still encounter words that when I see them, I think, I'm 46 years old and I've never seen that word before in my entire life. And then I see it the next day or the next week. I don't know if that's ever occurred to you or ever happened to you. Maybe you are shopping for a car and then you start to see this particular car that you're interested in everywhere. Everyone owns one of these things. Now, if it's a Subaru, it's probably true here in Portland. But you begin to notice these things. Or maybe you want to take a trip to Italy. And then you start noticing how many of your friends, it comes up in conversation, they've been to Italy. Or you hear an NPR program on uh, the Italian wine country. Or you see an ad for Italy. Now, uh, I don't know where my glasses are. I can't see my notes, so this could be interesting. Um, but uh, this is not just sort of synchronicity. It's not just an odd coincidence that you encounter something and then you start seeing it again. This thing actually has a name. It's called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. And that car, that vacation spot, that new word was probably in front of you semi-regularly. If it's a technical word, maybe not. But most of the time this happens. You've seen this word, you've seen this car, you've seen uh, advertisements for this country. But it's been in your passive recognition because the brain cannot notice everything that you encounter. It can't process everything as a discrete idea or entity and actually take recognition of it. And so your brain has this very complicated way of filtering out the stuff that is maybe not important. 
But when you see this word and you think, oh, I've never seen that before, it triggers your brain to say to itself, I guess, this is now important, and you begin to notice it. And so you've seen it all along, but now you begin to see it and you think that I've never seen this before, which may be true, but most of the time it's not. This is the the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. And it also happens because of our old friend confirmation bias. That is, we notice what we want to. We, our brain triggers us to think about things that confirm what we already think, that confirm our biases. And so, so much of the world that we see, so many things are hidden in plain sight. We go through the world passively recognizing them, but not taking note and not doing work on them. How does this enter into my worldview? How does this change? How does this alter? We filter it out. And we continue to believe what we want to believe, what we think we should believe. Now, you'd think that living with ourselves 24 hours a day, seven days a week for our whole life, that we know everything about us, that we are experts on ourselves. But the same sort of reality is true, that because of familiarity, because of confirmation bias, We see what we want to see about ourselves, and then we filter out those things that challenge us, that might challenge us in the ways that we need to be challenged, that might open up places that God wants to move into our lives in ways that we tend to hold Him off, tend to say, I'm fine. Would you stay out of that room, please? Well, we've been using this tool the Enneagram, which has this strange, bizarre word and has a very strange sort of uh, diagram that turns people off, but it's a useful tool to help us to do that internal work, to notice what is hidden in plain sight, to notice the things about ourselves that are actually blocks to our maturing spirituality, that are blocking out insights about who God is and how He's made the world and how He's made us to live in it and helping us to notice those things intentionally that maybe other people notice, but that because of confirmation bias or because of just familiarity, we don't notice about ourselves. And that's what we're calling this series, Awakening to Ourselves, that we need to have an awakening. We need to have sort of a conversion experience, even if we happen to already be believers, already be Christians, that we need to continue to repent, continue to convert, to allow the gospel to saturate more and more deeply. And so this sermon series is not really on the Enneagram. The Enneagram is a tool. It's an entryway. It's a map to help us map out our internal topography, if you will, to see what we need to see, to notice the bumps, to notice the hills, to notice the valleys. And the nine numbers are not really personalities. There are nine ways of being in the world. There are nine ways that we show up for life that are so common in human life that we ought to take notice, that we ought to say, oh, I can see how my life really aligns with this way of showing up in the world with all of its beauty and all of its goodness as well as all of its weakness and the ways that strength, if not 
uh, lived in a very intentional way and, and looked at and investigated can become also a weakness. And one of those nine, typically, you're going to say, wow, that sounds like me. And we're talking about twos this morning, and the that's me insight of twos is that they, they love to give. They love to help. They love to serve. They are empathetic. They see things that are going on in the world and say, how could I help that person, or how could I fix what is broken in this organization, in this community? They're thoughtful. They always know, most of the time, know the right thing to say. That's how they're known in their friend group, is that person who always kind of has a kind word, always has an encouraging thought, that always seems to be focused on someone else rather than themselves. Now, I have a a good friend who is also a pastor, and I think he is a two. He's the most empathetic person I know. I'll get texts from him out of the blue that just say, hey, how are you doing? And then we'll end with, I just want you to know that I think you are a great pastor. Good job. Keep doing it. You are loved. That's just the way he moves about the world. He loves to find ways to encourage individual people in particular ways. And whenever he finds out about someone in our friend group who is stalled, who feels a little bit stuck, are lost, are burdened, are hurting, he just laser beam, dials in, and takes the resources of the group to bring to bear upon whatever that individual is working through. Now, I say I think he is a two because I knew I was talking about twos this week, and I asked him over text if he knew what his Enneagram number was, and he said, <laughs> he said no, I hate those things. That's the stuff white people like. <laughs> so... It's not a great sales pitch for the Enneagram, but so just to mess with him, he said, no, I, don't, I hate those things. I said, well, you must be a six then. He didn't like that either. But he ended the text with, hey, I hope you know that you're loved, friend. And so, no, he is definitely a two. Well, twos are uh, the Mother Teresas of the world. They're the Desmond Tutus of the world. And so if this is your number, you're in fairly good company, but also Bill Cosby. So be careful to want it too badly and to say, yes, I'm a two. All of these numbers you see can be very empowering, but they can also be very humbling. And that's the point. Healthy twos don't have to be center stage. They just like helping people for the benefit of the other person. They just want to have the opportunity to lift people up. They see the wrong in the world and they want to fix it. They have healthy, healthy twos have boundaries. They know what they can fix. They know what's theirs to fix. They don't feel like I have to fix everything so they don't walk around in a state of panic because of everything that is wrong and broken. Now, unhealthy twos, that is people who haven't identified these patterns in their own lives, they haven't done the work to see how they interact with the world and to try and correct some of those patterns. They haven't utilized tools, utilized other people to help them see these things. They focus on other needs, others' needs, to the exclusion of their own. They feel guilty for having 
needs. And they feel like if I express these needs in this relationship, it's going to taint the relationship because so far this person has been completely one way. I got to help. I got to do. I got to lift up. I can't let them know that I also have needs. They have a real difficulty expressing that. Their feeling of worth is attached, overly attached to the response of the person that they're trying to help. We have sort of a a clinical term for this. It's codependency. When that becomes sort of an addiction, when when we need people to need us so badly that we can't do without it, it becomes this addictive sort of toxic cycle. And these people also, unhealthy twos, have difficult leaving toxic relationships because of that codependent sort of relationship. So they have this incredible aptitude of understanding what's going on in someone else's life and then identifying what resources, what strengths do I have that I can bring to bear upon that. It is an incredible gift to live with a healthy two. And it's just an amazing gift to the world. But also their service, their care, their giving can come from a place of not being enough. That they as persons are not enough. They don't have the the personal spiritual ballast. They're trying to fill that ballast. They're trying to fill themselves by helping someone else. And it creates this addiction. They don't have the internal validation from giving itself. And so they grow dependent upon this external acclamation, this external, hey, thank you, or way to go, or pats on the back, that that really is the drug that they're looking for. And they do it with altruism, or what looks like altruism. And so it can be kind of hard to spot, because these people are your best friends. These are the helpers. They're the caregivers. Now, similar to ones last week, we talked about how Ones have connected the idea that performance is connected to approval and that that's not a bad or incorrect assumption to make about our world, especially when we live in the West in a very meritocratic society. That it's true that approval and acclaim comes when we perform, when we show up, when we obey, especially in religious communities. And what twos have done is they have melded those things in terms of approval with service and acts of kindness. And that's how they're milking the meritocratic society, if you will. But what I want us to see here is that none of this is applying only to one-ninth of the people in this room. Some of you are going to say, yeah, I see that in my own life. Maybe that's me. Or you might say, get excited about, oh, now I understand why I love meeting people's needs. I'm temperamentally predisposed to that. But all of us should be able to recognize how we give service to others, expecting some, something in return. We want the person to reciprocate. That's the point of giving. That's the point of doing. That's the point of serving. Hopefully, if I show up for them, in their place of difficulty, in their moment, then I won't be left alone because they'll remember that and they'll come back and help me in my moment. 
And I think all of us probably can at least see that instinct at play in our lives. And in a good way, we all want to feel like we have an important role to play. We want to come to a community like this and be needed. And that's a very healthy thing, that in the creation order that God made Adam and Eve to be interdependent, that He gave them a mission to fulfill and made them helpers of one another, that it is good to be needed and that we have a need to be needed, that we should recognize and celebrate, that we want to contribute to something that is bigger than ourselves. And it could be said that this sacrificial life, that the helper life, is sort of the big idea of Christianity itself, that to be a Christian is to sign up for a cruciform life, a life of giving oneself away for the needs and burdens of others in response to Jesus doing that very same thing for all of us, that in many ways this is the big idea of Christianity. And twos have this incredible gift to be able to be tuned into that, oftentimes more instinctually than others of us can. We see it. Now, in our Corinthian passage that we read, Paul tells us about a time where the Christians in Jerusalem were suffering in an incredible way. They were suffering from a famine and poverty. And Paul went around raising funds to help this other church, most similar to what we did this morning, except the needs were internal to our own church. And then he writes to the Corinthians, and he sort of puts the screws to them, because he tells them this story about the Macedonian church, and then he's like, and now I'm about to ask you to give money. The unusual thing about the Macedonian church was that they didn't need to be told to help. They just needed to know that there was a need. They sort of said, hey, can we please help over here? We want to help. We want to give. And what is so amazing about that story is that they were poor, in fact, dirt poor, that they gave not because they looked at their budget and they looked at their spreadsheets and said, okay, we have a little bit more left over here. Maybe that can go. But they gave more than anyone objectively would look at them and say, that makes sense. They gave more than was rational to give. They were dirt poor. Maybe there was an unusually large gathering of twos in this congregation, but likely not. And that's the hope, is that we don't have to be all twos in order to learn to give in truly altruistic ways, to learn to see the world through eyes of service to learn to look at our resources and allocate them based upon a desire to help others. It is a true desire and not an act of reciprocation. They gave the Macedonian church to people that they, they didn't know, that couldn't pay them back, that couldn't even thank them. There were no strings attached to this gift. In the midst, verse 2, of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. One of my favorite writers is Cormac McCarthy, 
and his most popular, probably easiest read, if you want to start, is uh, entitled The Road. It came, back, came out, I think, in 2007. There's been a pretty, pretty decent movie uh, made on the basis of the book, and it tells the story of this father and son who are making their way across a post-apocalyptic Appalachian South. And they're in constant danger they're on sort of the run for their lives, but you don't know where they're going and why they're trying to get to the coast. But what you do know is that they're starving, literally starving. And the father, who is never named, they, were, they sat down for the night in this uh, bunker or whatever. And Cormac McCarthy says that the father found a last half packet of cocoa in his knapsack, and he fixed it for his son. And then he poured his own cup with hot water. But he blew over the hot water and kind of made these mmm sounds because he wanted his son to think that he was also drinking hot cocoa. And the boy looks at him, also not named, and says, you promise not to do that. You promise me. What? What did I promise you? You know what, Papa. And so the dad relents, and he pours his hot water out, and he takes some of the boy's cup, and he pours some of his hot cocoa into his own. And the boy says, I have to watch you all the time. Isn't that beautiful? I have to watch you all the time to keep you from giving to the extent that you put your own life at risk. The father, you see, had uncoupled his giving, his service, his help from any expectation of gratitude. He was intentionally hiding his service. And we understand that if we are parents, that we would do anything to give life to a child. We understand that for loved ones as well, that we would give up something in order to help someone that we love survive. And that's the real point, isn't it? Because the point is the fact that we love that person. Our love compels us to sacrifice our own good, our own health, our own resources on behalf of the other person. Our return, our benefit, the reciprocation is the fact that we get to see that person thrive. We get to see them, their burdens lifted. He wanted his boy's good more than he wanted thanks. What good is thanks when you're starving and you're about to die? The generosity of God, friends, is like this. That it is always reaching out, but it is willing to be overlooked. Many of the ways that God ministers to us, we never notice. It's hidden from our view that He gives grace to those who aren't looking for it, who aren't giving thanks for it. And He does it anyway. He's always considering us when we're not considering Him. And in Jesus, He gives us that last half packet of cocoa. Not because we will become these great Christian warriors and we'll take on the world. No, he wants us to thrive. He wants us to be helpful. It's out of the goodness of his heart. It's not with strings attached. It is unconditional. 
the natural cognitive bias of twos, and probably most of our cognitive bias, if we're honest, is that we live in a barter system, that we live in a quid pro quo world, that everyone is on the make and we got to protect what is ours. In fact, God is on the make, and we got to be careful about what He might take from us. And unhealthy twos, unhealthy any of us, give in order to get. We give to get leverage, and our giving may well be done with a receipt. I expect to be paid back for this. And maybe this sort of thinking, this cognitive bias, predominates in twos, but we all know what it's like to live or to think that we live in a zero-sum world, that all that I get is what I can get, is what I can accumulate, that we live in this competitive, retributive world, and in many ways it is true, and that's why we have that bias. That's our experience. But our cognitive bias says that the world always, in all corners, works like that. And that's not true, because we see exceptions to that. And what we have to learn to see is that in God, we see an eternal, cosmic exception to that rule, that He gives without strings attached, that He is not on the make, that the reason He sends Jesus to earth is for your good and for my good. And in believing this more deeply and actually practicing it, we can begin to give not in calculating, controlling, manipulative ways that actually ends up stealing our joy in the giving, but we can learn to see that we were not made to live in a reciprocal world, that we were not made to live in a way that we have to earn affection from one another, that we have to gather love by service, by doing. Verse 9 says that, for you know the what? The grace of God, the unconditional love, the favor, the kindness, for you know this about God. We know this about Jesus, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. Did you catch that phrase? Not because he had to, not because he gritted his teeth and did it anyway because you were such a miserable worm, but he's God and he has to come and look after you for your sake. Because of his unconditional kindness and because of his deep abiding affection for you, Jesus came and in his poverty you became rich for your sake. And we live in a world, friends, where grace is what God is always doing. Like the boy in the road, we can say, I knew you would do that again. I knew you would do that, Papa. That that's how we can go about the world, is that never expecting that God won't be there with grace, which is my bent often, which is probably yours, is that "Mm, I've really blown it this time and I've got to make it up to God somehow. But instead, I knew that you would do that again. I knew that you would give me grace, and sometimes grace hurts because it makes us understand how much we need it and how much we are not in control of our own lives. 
And then we go into the world that we are able to give, we are able to help, knowing that what Jesus says is what you've done for the very least of these, you've done directly unto Him. That the most menial act of service, menial from our perspective, takes on a cosmic significance because the most simple thing that we do of, of kindness, of giving, of serving, of helping, the thing that is overlooked has cosmic significance because Jesus said you're doing that not just to that other person, you're doing it to Him and for Him, to God Himself, yet without strings, without conditions, because we can't hold anything over God. We can't get it over on Him. But the beauty of the gospel is He's not trying to get it over on us. He just says, go and serve and give, and I will never stop going and serving and giving to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that whether or not we identify with this particular number, that we don't see that it necessarily predominating the way that we think about the world and our work and our predisposition to how things are, that we would see our tendency to give with strings attached, and that we would see as we come to this table how predisposed you are to give without strings attached that you give for our good, that you make your home among us because it is your delight to do so, and that we can say that we knew you would do that again when we see your grace one more time. And we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.